Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Three, two, one. But I've worked it out. I love to listen to your podcast. Whenever you say something, other people react to it. Taking my breath away, Aaron. Fern Lundquist joins me. Hall of Famer Jim Calhoun. NASCAR icon Dale Earnhardt Jr. Welcome Kirk Herbstreet is on the phone. Five podcast. It's the Air Tour Sports Podcast. It is Monday, March 28th, 2022. People, I hope everybody's doing well. I hope everybody is having a great day, and I think you know what we're going to talk about on today's episode of the Aerator Sports Podcast. That is right. A Final Four is set. We know who's going to New Orleans, baby. This is what we're going to do. We're going to break down all of the games in some form or fashion. We'll start with Duke. Got to talk about them. We'll go to Carolina. My boy Hubert Davis, I crushed him for two, three months. Credit to him for doing what he has done over the last couple weeks. We'll take a break. I have some thoughts on Jay Wright and Villanova that I think will be fun. We'll talk a little bit about Kansas, and we'll wrap with some other stuff because I got to tell you a couple things. One, I had a fun weekend. I had NBA Twitter all up in my you-know-what. I had J.J. Redick tweeting at me. A lot of you reached out to me to talk about it, so we'll talk about that. And then from there, maybe at the end, what we'll do is this. I know some of you aren't Duke, Kansas, North Carolina, and Villanova fans. What do you do and who do you root for in a Final Four that is the bluest of Blue Bloods. I'm actually really excited about it. We'll get into it in a minute. I do want to mention one quick thing before we get started, by the way. After you're done with the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, uh, I did join my buddy Colin Cowherd on his show, the Colin Cowherd Podcast, which is part of his podcast network, The Volume. I do encourage you to go check it out. We nerded out on college hoops for about 45 minutes. I love talking uh, hoops with Colin. We talked a little bit about Duke and Carolina and Kentucky, what happens with them, Gonzaga, what happens with them. Really fun conversation. Really enjoyed talking with Colin, so I encourage you to check it out. I'm sure many of you listened to him already. I'm sure many of you maybe listened to that one before you listen to this one. Some of you hopefully heard me on there and have come here, so I appreciate your support. With that said, though, Let's get to the topic of the day. And the topic of the day, I think you could probably guess. We got ourselves a Final Four, baby. That is right. The Final Four is set. We know who is headed to New Orleans. And what I would say is this. This Final Four is a TV executive's dream. And for some of you, it's a nightmare. Some of you don't like Duke. Some of you don't like Carolina. Some of you don't like Kansas. Some of you like none of them. Some of you don't like Villanova either. But the Final Four is set. And I'll say this. I actually do like it, 
after two years in which we had a, a no NCAA tournament and then a weird NCAA tournament to get the biggest, boldest, just about the sexiest Final Four that we could get. We're getting Duke Carolina in one game. We're getting two Hall of Famers in another game. This is about as good as it can get. I know if you're a Gonzaga fan, you're mad. If you're a Kentucky fan, you're really mad. If you're an Arkansas fan or, or whomever, you're frustrated that you were one step away and you couldn't get over the hump. But in terms of big, bold, national storylines, this is about as good as it gets. I'm really excited. I'm headed to New Orleans this week, although I will be back before the games actually are played. But with that said, let's talk about some of these games. And I do think the best place to start is in San Francisco. What did I say the other day? Chase Arena. The house that Steph Curry built. Uh, Joe Montana. Barry Bonds. The Tanner. Fit. No, still too soon. I'm sorry, Danny Tanner. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But San Francisco was the place that, obviously, look, it was the biggest story of the weekend, and I am sorry to the Tanner family. That is obviously awful. But um, San Francisco was obviously the, the place and the epicenter where the biggest story of the entire weekend and really the biggest story in sports is going on right now. Coach K, Duke, last run, the last dance. Would Coach K get to a Final Four in his final season? That obviously happened on Saturday night. Um, and I want to talk about it holistically because I do think something weird is going on with this Duke team that I don't think I've ever really seen before in sports, and it's really, really fascinating. So I want to get to that in a minute. But let's start with the game itself. And as I start with this game, I'm going to be perfectly honest. If you listen to anything I do, follow me on Instagram, follow me on Twitter, um, I'm not really surprised by the result that we got Saturday night, Arkansas versus Duke, okay? Uh, anybody who listens to this show knows I know the Arkansas program well. I respect the hell out of those players, that coaching staff. We've had Coach Muss on a million times, and I respect them like you can't even imagine. What they have done at Arkansas in such a short time is absolutely unbelievable. We talked about it on Friday. They obviously took care of Gonzaga on Thursday night, but I thought this was going to be a real uphill battle for Arkansas, and it's for one simple reason. What Arkansas does so well I didn't know that they could do against Duke. And so let me explain it. Let me get into it and let me discuss. Because when I look at this Arkansas program, look, at this point, you know, Eric Musselman's track record and backstory is well written, well documented. You don't need me to go through all the stops. But he obviously came from the professional ranks. He's been an NBA head coach. He's been a head coach in the D League, in the G League. He's been a head coach dating back to the ABA and CBA in the early to, to mid-90s, okay? He's been around. He's been around. He's stopped everywhere. But he's obviously brought that professional mindset and that professional background to college basketball. Where it concerned me against Duke, though, is this. If you know how not only Coach Moss, but most professional coaches, the way that they look at basketball is actually very simple. Mike Woodson does the same thing. Most, most guys that have an NBA background do look at the sport the same way. On offense, we want to figure out what your weakness is and attack, 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 attack. You got a slow, big seven-footer on the court. We are going to run pick and rolls until that guy cannot, uh, cannot stay on the court. We're just going to go after him, after him, after him, after him, after him. On the flip side, on defense, what we want to do is figure out what you do best, take that away, and make somebody else beat us. And I know that seems very simplistic, and that's obviously what every team is trying to do, take away your strengths and weaknesses. But I do think that second part, the part about taking away what you do best, I think that is something that Arkansas does as well as anybody in college basketball. Just think about this tournament. Teddy Buckets, Teddy Allen at New Mexico State. He's playing my alma mater, UConn. He goes off for 37 points. Next game, Arkansas says, 
we're going to make somebody else beat us. Teddy Allen, 5 of 16 from the field. He has 12 points. That Sweet 16 game against Gonzaga, we talked about it on Friday. I don't have all the answers. I'm not an X's and O's guru, but it was clear that they were going to limit the fast break. Gonzaga could not get running on makes, misses, this. They could not get fast break points, and they were going to take the ball out of Andrew Nemhard's hands, the point guard at Gonzaga, and make somebody else beat them. That's what they did. Andrew Nemhard, I believe, finished 4 of 13 from the field. 2 of 13 from the field actually is the correct number. And Gonzaga was a mess, and Gonzaga couldn't score, and Arkansas ran the best team in the tournament according to you know the, 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 the rankings. I mean, they were the number one overall seed. Arkansas just ran them off the court. And that's what Arkansas does better than anybody, I believe, in college basketball. Take away what you do best. Here was why I was concerned against Duke. How do you take away what Duke does best when all five guys on the court can beat you at any given time because they have the most talent, they got five NBA players, they have five guys that might get drafted in the first round this year, and of their top six, which basically play the entire game, every single one of them is an NBA player. So how do you take away what they do best when every single guy on the court can beat you? And that's ultimately what we saw on Saturday night. And so I don't need to break it down. I don't need to go through it. But at the end of the day, the reason Duke is headed to the Final Four is not why we thought they would go, right? We thought if they went to the Final Four, there'd be sketchy referee calls. There'd be this. There'd be that. There'd be, uh, you know, so there'd be the bat phone from the CBS Sports or the, the TBS Studios making sure that Duke gets to the Final Four. That's not what happened at all, okay? Duke was the better team from start to finish. It's not to take away from Arkansas. It's not to take away from what they did this season, how incredible their run to back-to-back Elite Eights is. But just watch the game, guys and girls. Just watch the game. Duke shot 54% from the field against one of the best defensive teams in all of college basketball. I heard Gary Parrish and some of the pregame stuff from CBS say this, is that since Arkansas's uh, three-game losing streak to open SEC play, that Arkansas had the second-best defense in college basketball behind only Texas Tech. Those are the two teams that Duke just went through. Duke took care of Arkansas. They shot 54% from the field in that game. By the way, Gonzaga, who we thought was this incredibly gifted offensive team, shot 37% from the field on Thursday. That shows you how talented Duke is, and if that doesn't show you, this does. As I said a minute ago, Duke essentially played six players. All of them had at least nine points. Three of them scored in double figures. Mark Williams controlled the paint. They just have better players than anybody else in college basketball. And so knowing how Arkansas wanted to play, and I, I can't say it enough, I am so blown away by what they've done there, it was always going to be an uphill battle, and Duke won. With that, I want to talk a little bit about Duke specifically, because I got to be perfectly honest, I am totally blown away by what they have done this tournament, and I'm going to take it a step further. I don't know that I've ever seen anybody in sports have a season quite like Duke. Okay, let's talk about Duke as they get set for this Final Four, first since 2015, Coach K going for his sixth national championship, okay? Think about Duke's season as a whole. It starts Madison Square Garden, Kentucky. Great game, they take care of business. Even a Kentucky fan would admit the score was kind of close, but Duke was the better team, Duke wins going away. About two weeks later, they play Gonzaga, a game that I was at in Las Vegas. Close, back and forth, nip and tuck, Duke ends up winning that game. And on that night, I wrote on my website, Aaron Torres Online, I said, guys and girls, you can hate me for saying it. Duke is the best team in college basketball. You can be mad, you can hate it, you can embrace it, you can love it. 
But at the end of the day, this team just beat what I think is a good Kentucky team and what I think is a good Gonzaga team. They're the best team in college basketball right now. And of course, at the time, Gonzaga was number one in the country. They had just beaten UCLA a day before. And so there was some real justification behind that. What was interesting, though, was what happened after that. They come off that high of beating Gonzaga. And I don't want to say they did nothing over the final five, six, seven, eight weeks of the season. But they kind of did nothing over really the last 12 weeks of the season. I mean, think about what happened after that Gonzaga game on Black Friday. December, January, February. And I know there was a Christmas break and there was a COVID pause and there was all this. But they were just like, eh, there was nothing special about this Duke team. I've said it a million times, but think about how their season played out. They lost to Virginia at home. Virginia's not an NCAA tournament team. They lost to North Carolina at home when I think North Carolina was still on the bubble. That was probably the game that put them over the top and into the NCAA tournament. They lost to a Florida State team that Florida State did not make the NCAA tournament, and they lost to Virginia Tech in the ACC championship game in a game where if you just look at Virginia Tech's seeding, they probably would not have made the NCAA tournament if they had lost that game, if they had, if Virginia Tech had lost that game to Duke. So just think about Duke. We're talking about a team that three losses to teams that essentially would not have made the tournament, including Virginia Tech, two that did not. And they had two losses at home, too, including to one that didn't even make the NCAA tournament in Virginia. So just think about that at the most basic level. We criticized Kentucky and we crushed Kentucky and John Calipari. They went undefeated at home. They didn't lose to a bad team all year until St. Peter's. Arizona didn't lose a single game at home all year. Tennessee didn't lose a single game at home all year. Auburn didn't lose a single game at home all year. And so it's kind of funny because it's like this chicken and the egg thing. On the one hand, I was sort of surprised that there wasn't anybody going into the NCAA tournament making the definitive argument for Duke. Why Duke is going to win it all and rally for Coach K. I was kind of surprised. I'm like, best coach, best players. Somebody's got to see that. And by the way, I include myself in that group. I'm not sitting here and getting on my high horse and saying I saw something that nobody else did. I didn't see it. And so it's crazy to me because we talk about this tournament and you can go back to Selection Sunday. There was a reason we liked Tennessee. They were awesome down the stretch. They beat everybody down the stretch. There's a reason we liked Kentucky. There was a reason we liked Arizona. There was a reason we liked Auburn. There was a reason we didn't like Duke. And this NCAA tournament starts and they just flip a switch and they start beating everybody. It goes back to what I just said a minute ago. It wasn't just Arkansas, by the way, that they just made more plays. Go back to that Michigan State game last weekend. Michigan State, in that game, in the second round, against a Hall of Fame head coach from the Big Ten, we criticized the Big Ten, but Michigan State's a tough team. Michigan State goes up two with three minutes to go. Oh, Duke goes on a 13-2 run from there. Last Thursday, Texas Tech, that was the game that I was convinced Duke was going to lose. Texas Tech's older, they're tough, they're physical, 23, 24, 25-year-old grown men. They've seen it all, they've done it all. They're just the type of team that's going to give Duke fits. Duke, same thing. They're down two with a minute, with two minutes to go. Uh, what's his face? Paulo Bancaro hits a big three. Ball game. Duke runs away with it. And so why I bring up this Duke thing is because I, I just said it a minute ago. I don't ever remember a team quite like them. I don't ever remember a team that was definitively, I think it was definitive in about mid to late November after they beat Gonzaga and Kentucky in the first couple weeks, definitively the best team in college basketball. Then just has three months where they're kind of like, eh, whatever, who cares? 
And then all of a sudden, they just get back to the tournament. They just flip a switch, and they're unbeatable. I mean, they beat three real teams to get to the Final Four. Michigan State, we can criticize, but the Big Ten is tough. Tom Izzo's a Hall of Famer. That Michigan State was in control. Duke flips a switch, wins that game. Texas Tech, it's the same. Mark Adams is a great coach. Texas Tech is so well coached. Flip a switch, game over. Arkansas, incredibly well coached. Eric Musselman, over. And I was trying to think, have I ever seen a team quite like Duke? Because I don't think that I have. And I put it out on social media, and a couple of you brought up, there's probably some NBA teams like that. But even the NBA, it's so different. Because if you have a Kevin Durant or a LeBron James, um, you know, it doesn't matter where you get in the playoffs. You just have the best player. You just have the guy that can take over. I saw some of you make the argument for the 2014 Kentucky Wildcats team. That was the team. Uh, at the time, it was the greatest recruiting class in the history of college basketball. Uh, Julius Randle, the Harrison Twins, Dakari Johnson, all those guys. And they really didn't play that well uh, all season long. Then they flip a switch, make a deep run in the NCAA tournament. But even that team, there was never really a moment in that season where you felt like they were the definitive best team. They lost to Michigan State in the Champions Classic. Uh, they, they, they finished, I think, 21-9 and nine in the regular season. They lost to South Carolina on the final day of the regular season. So it just blows me away. And we could criticize Coach K. We could criticize Duke. We could say we hate him. We could say this. We could say that. And I, I know most of you aren't rooting for Duke. I know most of you aren't going to be happy if they ultimately cut down the nets. But I'm just telling you, it is tough to – I don't want to say it's tough to not like this group of guys if you're not a Duke fan. But, man, what can you say? Like I said a minute ago. It felt like if Duke was going to win this tournament, they would need all the referee calls. They would need all the right matchups. They would need to face the right teams. Think about their draw. Michigan State in the second round. Texas Tech as a, as a three seed. Arkansas, yeah, they're a four seed, but they just beat Gonzaga the day before. So I don't want to belabor the point, but I just want to say I, I, I am so, like, one, blown away, and two, I can never remember anything quite like this Duke team. Definitive best team in the country to start the season takes three months off where they're a total mess losing to teams that you simply can't lose to. Get into the NCAA tournament, flip a switch. Love them or hate them, they are headed to the Final Four. And they're about to face, how about them, North Carolina Tar Heels? I mean, this is just insane. So let's get into it because I know normally when I do kind of a recap of a weekend, I would normally jump to the two Saturday games, then get to the two Sunday games. But with Duke set to face North Carolina, it only seems proper that I go from Duke to North Carolina and I got to be honest, I really didn't see this. I mean, I just said I didn't see Duke coming. I definitely didn't see North Carolina coming. And even as the bracket was starting to unfold, and you kind of start to see the path where maybe this could possibly happen. Friday night, North Carolina beats UCLA. Saturday, Duke take care of Arkansas. I just didn't think it was going to happen. I just felt like, one, St. Peter's is a real team. We'll get to them in a minute. But two, there is no way that in Coach K's final season, he's going to get to the Final Four and then play North Carolina. Only that's exactly what happened on Sunday. North Carolina takes care of St. Peter's 69-49. to Really quick, before we get to North Carolina, let, let me just give a quick shout-out to St. Peter's. Um, this is point-blank, point simple, end of story, one of the coolest things that I ever remember in the NCAA tournament, right? Um, and it's cool not just because of the story, but because of how the story unfolded. And I think when I go back and I think about the St. Peter's thing, there are two kind of separate stories within the story. 
There was the first weekend. They beat Kentucky. We're digging it. We're enjoying the hysteria. Sorry, Kentucky fans, that you got to relive this. But we're doing all the research and tell us about St. Peter's and oh, they play in a high school gym and they have a leaky roof and um, you know their their budget is smaller than John Calipari's contract. And then they beat Murray State and then they go play Purdue. And that was when, to me, it became another story of like, oh, this is a real team now, okay? You beat Kentucky, we've seen two seeds lose to 15 seeds. We've even seen a 15 seed pull off an upset in the second round. But to go to Philadelphia on Friday night and be the better team from start to finish against Purdue, that was when I was like, okay, this narrative is now something completely different. Let's credit Shaheen Holloway as being one of the best young coaches in college basketball. Let's credit a lot of these players who were probably misevaluated coming out of high school and flat out missed by some of the bigger programs. So what St. Peter's did, I don't think can be appreciated enough. And this isn't just some plucky underdog feel-good story. Once they beat Purdue, when Purdue has a full week to prepare and a full week to be asked a million questions about this all... Uh, St. Peter's is a real team. They're awesome, and they deserve all the credit that they get. But as I say, uh, sometimes the more interesting story is in the losing locker room. But in this case, it is in the more interesting. The more interesting one is in the winning locker room. And so let's get to Carolina, because as soon as this game went final, I had a lot of you, Torres. All you did all year was crush Hubert Davis. What do you got to say now? Well, what I got to say is a couple things. One, I don't think the criticism was wrong at the time. But two, I also have to give this guy a ton of credit, okay? I don't remember a team and a program really flipping a switch and getting so much better over the course of a period of about two to three months. I just said it a minute ago with Duke. Duke basically took off like two months right in the middle of the season, three months right in the middle of the season. North Carolina was the exact opposite. They were a complete mess until about January 30th, February 1st. And then all of a sudden, whatever Hubert Davis and his staff were doing behind the scenes, it clicked. And this was a completely different team. And all you got to do is simply look at the box scores. Listen, I'm not a just react to the box scores guy. But I do think when you look at North Carolina and you want to understand how did they get so much better so quickly, sometimes that's really all you got to do. Go back to the beginning of the season. They play Purdue at Mohegan Sun. They lose 93 to 84. They play Tennessee the next day in the same tournament. They lose 89-72. to They play Kentucky at the CBS Sports Classic. They lose 98-69. to That's a 29-point margin of victory. They lose to Miami 85-57. And I know Miami turned out to be better than we expected. North Carolina cannot lose to Miami by 28 points. And then in late January, they lost at Wake Forest 98-76. to And that was the day that I really went after Hubert Davis. Because not only were they 12 and 6, it's one thing to be Carolina and to be 12 and 6, and sometimes as a first year head coach, you can get a pass. But when you're 12 and 6 and you're at North Carolina and you have four losses by 15 plus points, well, I'm going to criticize you, and everybody in the media who criticized Hubert Davis, I think, was completely justified in doing so. It's not just that you're losing, it's how you're losing. And look at those numbers again 93 points allowed to Purdue, 89 points allowed to Tennessee. 98 points allowed to Kentucky, 85 to Miami, 98 to Wake Forest. And so that's what's so impressive about what he has done since. Now, yes, the ACC was a little bit down, but since that loss to Wake Forest that dropped him to 12 and 6, as I record here, North Carolina is now 28 and 9, which means that I'm not great at math. But if my math is correct, that means that they are 16 and 3 over their last, whatever that would be, 19 games. I told you I'm not great at math. But more importantly, look at what they've done in this tournament. 
They 63 points allowed to Marquette. Take out the Baylor game because it was overtime and they were in complete control. If Brady Manick doesn't get ejected, I think they win pretty convincingly. They did give up 86 there. But 63 points allowed to Marquette. 66 to UCLA. 49 to St. Peter's. And that is where Hubert Davis deserves the credit. We always knew this team was offensively gifted. But even dating back to last year, it didn't seem as though they were fully invested on the defensive end. So to go from allowing 93 to Purdue, 89 to Tennessee, 98 to Kentucky, 85 to Miami, 98 to Wake Forest, to 63 to Marquette, 66 to UCLA, 49 to St. Peter's, that is coaching, that is preparation, that is discipline, and that is players buying in. Now there's been some other stuff as well. Brady Manick has really emerged. I am blown away. That's the big, the kid with the big beard. 15 points per game he's averaging, but he has been a tournament star. 28 in the opener against Marquette, 26 against Baylor before he got ejected with 10 minutes left, 13 against UCLA, 19 against St. Peter's. Caleb Love, I give that kid so much credit for people who don't remember his backstory. Was a McDonald's All-American two years ago. Didn't play well as a freshman, wanted to go pro. There was no interest. There was brief talk about him transferring. He came back, and he's just been a completely different player this season at North Carolina as a sophomore. It took him time, but he has been so much better over these last couple weeks. I mean, you look at 30 points against UCLA the other night, 23 in the opener against uh, Marquette, excuse me. He's been phenomenal. They've been phenomenal, and it starts on the defensive end, and I give Hubert Davis so much credit. And so as we get set to look at the Final Four, listen, we don't have to break down Duke Carolina today. We got Wednesday and we got Friday for that. But at the same time, I mean, just think about what I said, okay? I just spent a ton of time talking about Carolina, as I should, deservedly so. But just think about what I said. We're about to get Duke and North Carolina in the Final Four. And I don't even know what to expect. And I'll say this. I'll, I'll even, I'll say this. I'll readily admit that as the bracket was playing out, uh, there was a part of me that once we got to a St. Peter's, North Carolina Final Four, we actually had this debate on my sports, my, my radio show on Fox Sports Radio on Saturday night. After Duke won, do you want to see Duke play Carolina for the first time ever in the NCAA tournament? Or do you want to see him play St. Peter's in the ultimate good versus evil, underdog versus David versus Goliath story? And at first blush, I wanted St. Peter's in that game. But now, when I thought about it, I was like, no, no, no. I want Duke versus Carolina, especially considering that Carolina just beat them at Cameron Indoor three or four weeks ago. And so I can't wait for this game. We don't have to break it down. And I got to be honest. And if we have any Carolina or Duke fans that listen, I want you to email me, Aaron, uh, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, or feel free also to hit me up on Twitter. What do you think Bourbon Street's going to be like the next two, three, four nights? Uh, you know, not the next two, three, four nights, but Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Because I have no idea what to expect. Now, North Carolina Duke isn't one of those like angry rivalries where you get uh, poison trees and, 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 and fights in the retirement home. I remember when uh, Kentucky and Louisville played in the Final Four, ironically, in 2012 in New Orleans. If I remember correctly, there was a fight in a retirement home. I don't think we're getting any of that, but I am so fascinated to see, and I'm so curious to see how those two fan bases handle this, but credit Hubert Davis, man. Credit Hubert Davis, completely flipped a switch. He deserves all the credit in the world for turning this program around. The players deserve credit for turning the season around and buying into Hubert Davis, and the last thing I'll say is this. I do think Duke's the best team left in this tournament. I do think they should be the favorite going to New Orleans. I do know that they just lost to Carolina, but even with Duke playing as well as they have, 
We just saw them lose to Carolina, and I wouldn't put it past Carolina to pull the upset. Listen, they're an eight seed, but I remember in the preseason, I think I had them number 12, 13, 14 in my preseason poll. Um, I, I think they were about 17, 18. In the, they're a really talented team. Caleb Love was a McDonald's All-American. Armando Baycott was a top 20 player coming out of high school. Brady Manick was a four-year contributor in the Big 12 at Oklahoma. So I am so excited about this game. I cannot wait. I cannot wait to see uh, what Bourbon Street is like over these next couple days, and it is going to be so, so, so fun. All right, so what I want to do, I want to take a quick break. I want to come back. I do want to talk a little Villanova. I got to tell you about my run-in with NBA Twitter. Ooh, baby. Then we'll talk a little uh, Kansas, and then we'll get out of here. We're going to get back to the college basketball in a minute, but the final four is here. We are down to four, and our partners at DraftKings have an incredible offer for you first-time users. There are three games left in the season, and here's the deal. If you make a bet on any of these remaining games, bet on any team, Duke, Carolina, Kansas, or Villanova, make a $5 money line bet if that team wins. You automatically get $200 in free bets courtesy of DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. It's the best offer going. Here's how you take advantage. First of all, click the link in the show description. Sign up for a new DraftKings Sports account. You got to so- click the link, sign up for a new account. Then you go to the Sportsbook, bet $5 on any team after you make a deposit. And if your team wins, you get an automatic $200 in free bets. Click the link, sign up for an account, go to the Sportsbook, $5 bet. $200 in free cash if your team wins. It's the best offer going, so take advantage now. If you or somebody you know has a gambling problem, crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537 in Illinois. Gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER in Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Wyoming, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-888-532-3500 in Virginia, 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, or call or text Tennessee Redline, 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Must be 21 plus or over to enter, 18 plus or over in Wyoming, Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming, Louisiana, New York only. Minimum $5 deposit, minimum $5 wager. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash Sportsbook for full terms and conditions. All right, everybody, I'm back. Good to be back. Good to be back. Thank you again to our partners, DraftKings and the DraftKings Sportsbook. Uh, before we get, get back to basketball, I got to say this, okay? So sometimes you're doing a show, and sometimes in real time I take a break, I prep notes, I do this, I do that, and I was just prepping notes, and I had the Oscars on in the background, and oh my goodness, in the middle of taping this show, Will Smith took a swing at Chris Rock. And I don't know all the details, and I don't want to speculate. I did just see the reports that apparently Chris Rock said something about Jada Pickett. Apparently, she has alopecia. I'm not making light of it. I'm not joking about it. But from my understanding, that is what happened, and oh my goodness. Uh, I wish I had more pop culture understanding. I wish I wasn't reacting in real time because maybe this is a very, very serious topic, and I don't want to make light of it. But in the middle of taping this show, Chris Rock got, got, I don't know if it was a, it wasn't a punch, it was a slap, it was a smack, 
by, by, by Will Smith, what is even going on? I don't understand. And so listen, by the time you guys listen to this show, guys and girls, you'll have some more details. Again, I don't want to make light if it's a serious situation, but oh my goodness, what just happened? Whew. All right, I need to take a deep breath. Let's, let's get back on track here. And I do want to switch gears. And I do want to talk about the other two games from this weekend. By the way, I'll mention my little dust up with, uh, with NBA Twitter. JJ Reddick coming at your boy hard. Like I'm a, you know, a, 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 a Duke opponent in the early 90s or early 2000s. But anyway, let's start with the early game on Saturday, Villanova-Houston. And what I will tell you about that game is this. You have my word, okay? We ain't breaking down that game. Okay, there's some games where we got to talk about, okay, with two minutes left, this happened, and then Villanova did that, and then Houston did this, and with six minutes to go, Kelvin said, no, we ain't doing that. The final score was 50-44, to and it was a tough watch, okay? Houston ended up shooting one of 20 from three. It was an ugly game. It was a hideous game. It was a sloppy game, but Villanova did ultimately win this game to now advance to their third Final Four since 2016. And so I want to talk about Villanova and I want to talk about this team because as the game went final, there were really two things that struck me about Villanova as they get set to go to the Final Four. And unfortunately, there was some unfortunate news. Justin Moore, their second leading scorer, did go out with what we now know as an Achilles injury. He will not be available. And so as great as this Final Four is going to be, I do think it's tough to see Villanova winning another two games without arguably their second or third most important player. Uh, So that's the disappointing part, but I do want to talk about Villanova as a whole, because as a basketball program, I had two definitive thoughts about this basketball team after watching that game. After Villanova made their third Final Four in the last six seasons, the last six NCAA tournaments, the last seven seasons overall, I do believe that Villanova is probably the best basketball program in college basketball, and they are the program that every program should model themselves after, and I want to talk a little bit about that. I also have one other question. Is Jay Wright weirdly underrated as a college basketball coach? It sounds crazy, two-time national champion, but I truly do believe that Jay Wright is probably a little bit underrated. So let's talk about it because, as I said, Villanova, third Final Four since 2016, fourth under Jay Wright, and they're just an incredible story, right? They they, they had great moments in the 80s, great moments in the 90s. Jay Wright comes, gets them to a, a Final Four in 2009. Um, I don't want to say they bottomed out, but they had a bad year or two. Jay Wright builds it back up, the new Big East happens, and they have been a force ever since then. But what makes them a model program? And by the way, as we get into this, I want to say this. This isn't a, your way of doing things is wrong, they're right, they have older players, you have one and dones, their players love school, their players are great. No, it's not that. But it does seem as though, when you make three Final Fours in six years, when you win a million Big East regular season and tournament titles... Uh, at some point, we got to acknowledge that you are doing something that nobody else is doing. And if every everybody says, well, you know, anybody could do what they do. Well, if everybody could do what they do, why has nobody else done it? So let's get into it because I, I, I believe that really three things happen at Villanova that I don't think other, I don't think anybody does these three things as well as Villanova. One, I believe they are insanely good at the identification process in recruiting. And when I say identification, it's not just talent. It's not just how high you can jump. It's not just what your wingspan is. But are you the right fit for Villanova? There are so many schools. There are a lot of schools, a lot of schools that you'd probably be surprised by that strictly recruit off a recruiting ranking, that strictly want to go after five stars, that want to go after big names, that want to go after who 24-7 or on three sports say are the best players. And then there's a school like Villanova 
that cares much more about whether you are the right fit for their program than whether you are a five-star, four-star, three-star, okay? What do I mean by fit? One, what are you coming to school for? Jay Wright has said this. He's act- I think he said it on this podcast when I had him about six months ago. Um, do you want to come to college to actually be a student? Because if you don't like school, Villanova's probably not the place for you. If you don't want to be a sm- – and by the way, there's nothing wrong with that. You want to go to overtime elite. You want to go to the G League. You don't like school. A lot of us didn't like school at 18 years old. I'm not criticizing. I'm not judging. But you don't want to go to school. You don't want to be a student. You don't want to be part of this community. This probably isn't the right place for you. Two, small Catholic school, Philadelphia, that plays a role. Three, you can't dictate to us how quickly you want to be out. Okay, And I think this is an important part as well, and it goes back to the five-star, four-star, three-star. Do you want to be at school, and do you want to develop at your own pace? And this isn't a one-and-done is wrong, and this uh, four-year players are the only way to do it. But at the same time, Jay Wright has been very vocal about, I think he said at maybe the 2018 Final Four, that there have been kids that come on campus and say, Coach, I'm a, I'm a one-and-done. I'm out of here after one year. And he says, I don't care how talented you are. I, I don't think that's even wrong. But you can't come here and say that. You can't tell us that you're going to be gone in a year or two because that's not how it operates here. Now, have they had players leave after a year or two? They have. Jeremiah Robinson Earl, awesome player on last year's team, left after two years. Uh, Sadiq Bey the year before, I believe, uh, I could be mistaken, but left after two years, maybe three. Josh Hart left early. So it's not as though guys don't leave early. It's not as though we only take four-year players and if you want to, no. But it has to be at the right time. It has to be when you're ready. It has to be when you are able to go to the NBA and contribute and have success. Just looking at this team, I was kind of blown away when I saw it all. Colin Gillespie, fifth-year senior. Now, he had an injury late last year. He had to come back. He, he took his extra COVID year, but you know he could have gone and tried to go pro. Jermaine Samuel, same thing. Got hurt late last year, decides to come back for another season. Justin Moore, the kid who unfortunately got hurt, third-year junior. Eric Dixon took a red shirt, their, big, their best big guy, six foot eight, six foot nine down low. Redshirted as a freshman, played the last two years. Caleb Daniels, their their first guy off the bench who's now going to have to start because Justin Moore is out. He is a fifth-year guy who transferred in from Tulane. So just thinking about that, you have three You have three guys basically in your starting lineup, your top five scorers, that are fifth-year guys. Another guy redshirted. Another guy is a third-year junior. That's just different. Two, I think they develop as well as anybody in college basketball, and I'm not going to get into all the stats, but just look at Colin Gillespie. He, play, he was a small role player on the 2018 National Championship team. Now he is the star of another Final Four team in 2022. Ironically, the 2018 National Championship team, Jalen Brunson was the National Player of the Year, was a role player on the 2016 National Championship team. So guys come in, they get better, they develop. Again, it goes back to the red shirt. Most of the guys that have gone to the NBA, Dante DiVincenzo took a red shirt. Uh, the kid Amari Spellman, who I don't even know if he's still in the NBA, took a red shirt. Eric Paschal, who is in the NBA, took a red shirt. Take your time, develop at your own pace, get better though. And then three, and we all see it, It's the, the fundamentals with Villanova are unbelievable. And there are some teams, and again, I'm not criticizing any specific program, but they just got to go out and they got to beat you on talent. And when the shots aren't falling and this isn't happening and that isn't happening, they aren't going to win games. Villanova is better at the fundamentals than anyone that I have seen in college basketball. You watch them, it is like a clinic, and that is why they had success against Houston. Not because they were the better team, not because they were the more athletic team, but because it was ball fakes and dribble and drive and kick, and you just work the ball until you get wide open for a shot, and then the shot goes in and the other team doesn't even know what hit them. 
So you look at this team, and it is just unbelievable to watch them. They're great at the fundamentals. It's funny. I think I've told this story, and I don't think he'd mind me saying it because he said it on TV, but uh, Villanova played at uh, Villanova played at UCLA earlier this year, and Mike Schmitz, the ESPN draft analyst, was sitting next to me. And I said, Mike, do you, you see everybody. You travel all over the country. Do you see anybody that has better fundamentals than Villanova? And he said, no. He said, if I had a son, this is the team, this is the program that I want him to play for. So to me, Villanova's the model of how you should do it. I'm not saying it's right for everybody. I'm not saying it's perfect for everybody. But the fundamentals of evaluating the right kids, not recruiting strictly off rankings, but personality, uh, do you want to be developed? Do you want to get better? Are you going to be patient? Are you going to trust the process? That's something that a lot of college basketball programs can learn from. And then again, the simple stuff, the ball fakes, this, that, the other thing, whatever. Beyond that, I do have another question that I've kind of been chewing on over the last couple weeks, really the last day or so. I shouldn't say the last couple weeks. I do have a question, though, and this is going to sound crazy. Is Jay Wright actually underrated? Like, is Jay Wright actually underrated? Because just think about it at its most basic level, and it goes back to what I just said a minute ago. But on Monday, or on Saturday, excuse me, Villanova clinched its third Final Four in the past six seasons. That is insane, okay? And you just think about that at the most basic level. Third Final Four last six years. And I know we wanted to move on to Coach K, and I knew there were other big stories on Saturday. But Coach K, at that point, had not made a Final Four since 2015. Villanova had qualified for their third. Tom Izzo, last Final Four, 2019, but he's only been to one since 2015. Calipari hasn't been to one since 2015. So three Hall of Fame coaches since 2015 have two combined Final Fours, Tom Izzo in 2019 and John Calipari, or uh, Mike Krzyzewski in 2022. Villanova has three in the last six years, and when they won, it was just like, oh, Villanova's going to another Final Four. There's Villanova. Look at Villanova. They go to Final Fours is what they do. And so I do think Jay Wright is underrated. I do think he's underappreciated. Now, I do think college basketball fans would tell you he's probably the best coach or one of the two or three best coaches in college basketball. But I still think he's not talked about enough. Think about how much time we talk about John Calipari, how much time we talk about Coach K, how much time we talked about Hubert Davis this year. We never talk about Jay Wright. And I do believe it's for two reasons. And there are two reasons that I believe that he is maybe not underrated, but at the very least undercovered. First of all, he's not the least bit controversial. There is nothing inherently interesting about him except for his suits. Uh, He came on this podcast. He could not have been nicer. He is not combative with the media. He was great to me. He was great before the show. He was great after the interview. He thanked me. He told me how much he enjoyed it. I mean, some guys, you can't get to do anything. He came on this podcast like two days after he got back from the Olympics in Tokyo, and he did the podcast, and he had a blast, and he thanked me for doing it, okay? So one, I just don't think he's controversial, right? Calipari barks at everybody. He barks at the refs. He barks at his players. He barks at fans. Uh, you know, he barks at the media sometimes. Coach K doesn't want to do interviews. Um, You know, Mick Cronin can be feisty, and I love Mick Cronin. Chris Mack was a little bit feisty when he was at Louisville. Tom Izzo is definitely feisty. Juwan Howard, we just talked about the Oscars. You don't need me to get into that again. Jay Wright's just calm, cool, collected, never really seems to get mad. Yeah, every once in a while he'll get get after a ref, but he's great with the media. He's great with his players. He doesn't yell. He doesn't scream. I think that's part of it. The other thing I would say, too, and I do think this is a factor, and I I do need to mention it, and I think I might have mentioned it on this show before, but there's this narrative that because 
the Big East is not on ESPN, that they are undercovered. And I never really believed that until this year. But this year was really when it hit home for me. Because first of all, you had some great programs in the Big East last this, this past season. And really, unless you were a diehard, it was really hard to find coverage of them, especially on the worldwide leader. And by the way, I understand why ESPN does not cover the Big East. And for people who are kind of wrapping your head around, why, why not? ESPN does not have the Big East um, broadcast package. And so the Big East is not a corporate partner of ESPN. Instead, it's Fox. It's the company that I work for. And I think Fox does an amazing job of how they cover the Big East. They, they do an incredible job of covering the Big East, wall-to-wall, every game, Big East tournament, whatever. But we all know that because ESPN has so many rights packages, they, they own the entire ACC, the entire SEC, most of the Big 12, most of the Pac-12. Um, because of all of that, a lot of the Big 10, they cover the teams and the things that are relevant to them, and they are really the epicenter of where college basketball coverage is, right? Jay Billis, Dick Vitale, uh, Jimmy Dykes, Fran Fraschilla, whatever. And so I believe that's part of this too is ESPN has no incentive to hype up and uh, talk about Jay Wright because they get no benefit out of it. And I do wonder if that's part of it as well. So these are some half-baked ideas. I don't want to belabor the point, but I was just sitting here thinking like, am I crazy? I feel like nobody talks about Jay Wright. Nobody talks about Jay Wright. So I want to take a minute. I want to give him credit. Congratulations to Villanova headed to their third Final Four since 2016. And I don't think they get enough credit. By the way, before we get to before we get to Kansas, um, I'd be remiss. Something happened during the Villanova Houston game that a lot of you seem to have seen because I I mean you talk about a big 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 story that I did not know was so crazy, but I said something during the Villanova Houston game that I didn't think was all that crazy or all that innocuous or all that offensive, and I pissed off NBA Twitter. So bad. NBA Twitter, a little echo chamber where everybody has to say the same things and have the same opinion and love the NBA and never criticize it and never get mad. Oh, buddy, did I say something that made them upset? So mad, in fact, that J.J. Redick, who I think is the king of NBA Twitter, he retired. All this guy does is stay on social media. Even J.J. Redick was coming after your boy. So so here's what, let me just, let me give you my perspective on things and why to be blunt, I don't think I'm wrong on this particular topic, but my goodness, did I get people mad. So here, here's what happened. So I'm watching the Villanova-Houston game, okay? I'm watching the Villanova-Houston game and I can't lie. It is really a tough watch, okay? It's a really tough watch. I cannot deny that it is a really, really, really tough watch. I love college basketball. It's a really tough watch. But I think part of the reason it's a really tough watch is because you have two really elite defensive teams playing in a game that's a one-and-done, lose-and-go-home. And oh, by the way, the college basketball defensive rules are much different than the NBA, FIBA, all that stuff. You can get away with a lot of stuff in college that you can't get away with in the professional ranks. And so during the game, it's a tough watch. I'm not denying that it is a tough watch. But during the game, um, I started seeing all the same narratives that you always see about college basketball anytime you get a sloppy game in the NCAA tournament. Oh, the product is so bad. This is why I can't watch. It's like, first of all, it's a standalone one game, okay? 
if you gave me any individual, we have bad games in the NBA all the time, but they're not standalone. And college basketball fans don't sit there and say, oh, my God. This Raptors-Grizzlies game is the worst thing that I... This is why I don't watch the NBA. So anyway, I saw a bunch of that. And I'm going to set up the story here. So I saw a bunch of that. And I put out what I thought was a very harmless, very like non-confrontational tweet. This is what I said. I said, I love all the arguments I'm seeing today about the quote-unquote quality of playing college hoops or the product or whatever. Trust me, if NBA teams played 48 minutes of defense like Houston and Villanova tonight, we'd see a lot of games in the 70s and 80s in that league too. I don't think that's controversial. By the way, that's not the typical college basketball guy saying, nobody plays defense in the NBA, that's why I don't watch. I watch college basketball because the kids try so hard. No, that's not what I'm doing. But the bottom line is, what I said is not even remotely controversial. If NBA players were allowed to play defense the way that Houston and Villanova do, and oh, by the way, on top of that, um, you know, were, if they were allowed to play defense the way that Houston and Villanova did, and in a one-and-done setting, we would have a lot of low-scoring games. That is not controversial. That is not a crazy opinion. That is, that's like me saying, if, if you could beat up NFL quarterbacks like you used to be able to do, and you could take guys' heads off going over the middle as wide receivers then yeah, you're not going to have Tom Brady at 44 years old throwing for 40-plus touchdowns. That doesn't seem controversial to me, and it doesn't seem controversial to say that if NBA rules were the same as college and t- players played as hard for 48 minutes on the defensive end and were allowed to do the things that college players did, we'd have a lot of low-scoring games. That does not seem controversial at all. Oh my God, NBA Twitter disagreed. You should have s- my mentions for literally 24 hours absolutely insane okay it started with one specific NBA writer who follows me I know exactly who it is he's like Mr. NBA Twitter and anytime you say anything bad about an NBA he jumps right in and Torres you're an idiot and you don't know what you're talking about and screw you blah 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 and then it had a trickle-down effect and so ultimately it got to JJ Redick my boy JJ Redick former Duke Blue Devil this is what my boy JJ Redick had to say about my tweet Tell me you don't watch the NBA without telling me you don't watch the NBA. Well, actually, J.J. Redick, I do watch the NBA. And I know you're the king of NBA Twitter. And I know that you love your sport. And I get it. But what I said was not wrong. And first of all, let, let, me, let me just even backtrack here. Like I said, first of all, yes, they play real defense in the NBA. No, I'm not Mr. College Basketball. These guys try so hard, so I love college basketball. But at the same time, Here's the simple fact. This is not debatable. This is not whatever. And and by the way, let me be clear. I understand that the skill level in the NBA is better than it's ever been, okay? So this is not whatever. But at the same time, here's the bottom line, okay? The NBA, like I just said, like the NFL, they have changed every single rule in recent years, or maybe not every single rule, but most rules in recent years to benefit the offensive player. You can argue. You can debate. It's the truth. And I'm not even saying it's the wrong thing. Because at the end of the day, people want to come and see offense. People want to come and see 140 to 138, or they'd rather see that than 80 to 79. I don't think that's controversial either. I don't blame the NBA for making that decision. But at the same time, that is the fact that they do. They have changed the rules. And if you want the facts, here are the facts. There used to be a rule called hand check. In other words, you could put your hands as a defender on another player. 
the NBA eliminated the hand check in 2000, the end of 2004 going into the 2004-2005 season, okay? And that was because it was stagnating offenses. Here are the scores of the NBA Finals games the year before they took out the hand check. Pistons be, It was Pistons-Lakers, the famous Pistons-Lakers series. Pistons beat the Lakers game one, 100-87. Game two, they win 88-80. Game three, they win 88-68. Game four, I'm, I'm screwing up the scores here, but the final scores of those games were as follows. 87-75, 99-91, 88-68, 88 I read them in reverse order. So that means that the Detroit Pistons won a series in the pre-hand check era, three of the four wins they scored in the 80s. The Lakers scored in the 90s in their only win. And so to me, it goes back to what I said a minute ago. What I said was not even the least bit controversial. If NBA defenders could defend like Houston and Villanova do, and I'm not saying they don't try hard. What I am saying is the rules don't allow it. So, with that said, I think I was right. I think I was right. And by the way, here's the other thing. People say, well, the skill level is so different. Well, here's my question. The skill level is by far the best it's ever been in the NBA. So, so the argument is even if we change the rules back, the skill level is so good everybody would be getting 130. Here's my question, though. To me, it's, again, a kind of a chicken and the egg thing. Is the skill level so good because it's never been better? Or is the skill level so good because the way the rules have been changed on defense, you have to have skill and you have to prioritize skill over anything else. And so let me explain, okay? So the Golden State Warriors are obviously the best example. But the Golden State Warriors are also, you can defend them, but you can't really defend them, at least not the way that you could 30 years ago. Not criticizing the Warriors, just a fact. So here's my question. The way to beat the Warriors now, or the way to beat the Brooklyn Nets now, or the way to beat the Los Angeles Lakers now, is to simply get more skill than them. The Warriors are the most skilled team. You can't really get physical with them on defense, so maybe, just maybe, you have to be able to outscore them. And so that is why the skill level is so good, because the only way to counter skill is with more skill. Well, what would happen if they changed the defensive rules back and you could build a team like the Bad Boy Pistons, or like the 1990s New York Knicks with Anthony Mason and Xavier McDaniel and uh, Charles Oakley and Patrick Ewing. Then maybe skill wouldn't be such a priority. So I'm not going to belabor the point. we got to get to Kansas and get out of here. The show's going long as it always does. But I pissed off NBA Twitter, but here's the thing. Where Aaron was right, where Aaron was wrong? Oh, baby, was I right on this one. I'm sorry. It was literally, I'll say this, last thought. I say a lot of crazy stuff. And some of it, like, even when I say it, I'm like, that was dumb. I shouldn't have said that. This was not controversial. This was not wrong. Let's talk a little Kansas. So, yeah, let's get into that last game. And I'll be honest, I'll wrap up and start to make this quick because I don't know that there's some amazing, incredible takeaway on the Kansas-Miami game. Miami, to their credit, came out, started the game basically about as well as Miami possibly could have. They were up six at the half. They had Kansas shook. Cam McGusty was by far the best player on the court. He finished the game with 18 points. And then I don't know what Bill Self said at halftime. I mean, that might be the question that I got to ask Bill Self at the press conference on, on Thursday, Friday in New Orleans, because whatever he said, 
I mean, Kansas put together, I would argue, one of the best halves of basketball anybody has played all year, pulling away, winning convincingly against Miami, 47-15. to They outscore Miami in the second half. They win 76-50. to They win by 26 in a game that they were trailing by six at the half. It shows you just how dominant they were in the second half. And again, I don't know that there's any like amazing takeaway from Bill Self in Kansas, and we got plenty of time this week to talk about this game. My only quick thought is this. First of all, Kansas, they were my preseason national championship pick. Caw-caw, caw-caw. And I bring it up because I, I, I was high on Kansas coming in. I sold all my Kansas stock. But the Kansas team that we have seen over the last two, three games is starting to look like the Kansas team that I thought would be the Kansas team that we now have when I picked them to win the national championship in the preseason. And what do I mean by that? It's that when I picked Kansas to win the national championship in the preseason, what I saw was this. A good, veteran, solid returning core. Ochai Abaji, Christian Brown, David McCormick. I didn't know Dewan Harris was going to be this good, but he's been really good. Jalen Wilson, who was a double-digit scorer last year. But what I also saw was a team that was bringing in an instant impact transfer in Remy Martin, from Arizona State, two-time All-Pac-12 first team, 19 points per game. And I said, wait a second now, you got all these veterans, and if you can add this spark plug offensive guy, oh boy, game over, this is the best team in the country. Or a team that, maybe not the best team in the country, but in the preseason I thought, they are a team that is equipped to make a deep, deep, deep tournament run. And I believe win a national championship. And so I bring it up because really throughout the season, this version of Kansas really wasn't there. Um, you know, they were good throughout the season, and it's no disrespect, and Kentucky beat their brains in, and but, but for the most part, regular season champ in the Big 12, conference tournament champ, but there was never that moment where Kansas like made the statement, this is who we are, this is what we're about. And then you get to the NCAA tournament, and a funny thing happened. It's almost like a, a, a diet version of what Duke did. You know how I just talked a minute ago about Duke just flipping a switch, they're the best team, ball game, game over. Well, Kansas, I don't want to say they did the same thing, But at the same time, most importantly, what happened was this. The Remy Martin, the guy that I thought was going to be the number two to Ochai Abaji and a really important player, out of nowhere, this guy just flipped the switch, and when he flipped the switch, Kansas flipped the switch. And to be clear, for Kansas fans listening, I know. He was hurt most of the year. He was in and out of the lineup. There was also some stuff with Bill Self where he wasn't happy with some of the things that that, that Remy Martin was doing. But I bring it up because the Remy Martin that I thought Kansas was going to get, they've actually gotten over the course of this NCAA tournament. He had 20 points against Creighton, 79-72 win against Creighton, 20 points, 7 rebounds, 4 assists. I'm not saying they don't beat Creighton without Remy Martin, but I think there's a possibility they don't beat Creighton without Remy Martin. Friday night against Providence. I don't know if you watched this Providence game. It was freaking brutal. But Remy Martin had 23 points in that game. The score was 26-17 to 17 at halftime. Remy Martin had half of Kansas's points. So if Remy Martin wasn't on this team playing at the level that he was, we're talking about a Kansas team that has 13 points at the half, and pretty much we have the worst half of basketball in the history of college basketball. Could have been 17-13. And so Remy Martin carried them until the rest of the other guys stepped up. Much better second half against Providence. Providence keeps it close. 
Kansas wins. And Remy Martin was awesome against Miami. He, he quote-unquote, only had nine points, so it didn't look amazing. But when Kansas was struggling, he was the guy he stepped up when they needed. And so when I look at this Kansas team, the one thing I would say is this. I do think they have an advantageous matchup against Villanova. We'll talk about it over the course of the week because of the fact that Villanova is now down another guy. They really only played seven guys, and they now have two guys with season-ending injuries. But beyond that with Kansas, what I would also say is that when I look at this team, not only do they have an advantageous matchup against Villanova, but they, like Duke, are playing their best basketball, as weird as it sounds, in the last two, three weeks of the season. They win the Big 12 tournament. They're now in the Final Four, and I think they're just now starting to figure out what their capability is, and what I would say about Kansas specifically is I do think that they are probably, if they are operating at the level like they did against Miami, they are best built to actually beat Duke and keep Duke from winning a national championship. So if you don't want to see Coach K on that ladder cutting down the nets in New Orleans with his sixth national championship, I think your best bet is to root for Kansas because you root for Kansas I think they are the best team that's equipped. I know UNC beat them. I have some doubts about UNC. Whatever. Finally, let's wrap by saying this. Some of you guys are really frustrated. Some of you guys are so frustrated because we have a Duke Villanova, North Carolina, and uh, and uh, who, who did I miss? Kansas Final Four. And it's funny. I saw mostly Kentucky fans, and I don't want to make this a Kentucky segment, but just like, I mean, this is a worst-case scenario for us, but they were just like, whatever. I hate Duke, I hate Carolina, I hate Kansas, I hate Villanova. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to do the reverse who you should be rooting for uh, if you don't, if you're not a blue blood guy. If you were hoping for St. Peter's or if you're a Kentucky fan that's upset or if you're a Tennessee fan that thinks you should have been there or an Arizona fan that thinks you should have been there, here is what I think is the definitive rooting order of this NCAA tournament. One, I think Villanova's first. They're not a blue blood. They're not a blue blood, by the way. I got in that argument last year with Villanova. They're not a blue blood. But I would say Villanova's number one in terms of the teams that you would want to root for. Likeable head coach like we just talked about. Program on the rise. But they're not the historically relevant program like uh, like Carolina, like Kansas, like, UC, uh, like, uh, uh, like Duke, that the record books are going to be rearranged if they win the national championship. Two, I do think you want to root for Hubert Davis in North Carolina. New head coach. They're a blue blood, but they weren't great. Plus, I mean, imagine if Carolina knocked off Duke in the Final Four in Coach K's swan song. I mean, you talk about the ultimate trump card. Carolina fans, that is the ultimate trump card, by the way. Duke can never get the upper edge in that rivalry if you beat Duke in the Final Four in Coach K's last game. So you're rooting for Carolina. Then I think it's got to be Bill Self. Then I will also say I think it's got to be Coach K last. I don't have as much of a beef with Coach K, not because I'm like rooting for him, but I have been impressed by his team, which has really come together late in this NCAA tournament. I do think it's time for me to get out of here, though. Long show, fun show. Final four is set. Uh, Before we get out of here, I want to remind you, make sure you're subscribed. Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, Google Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, make sure that you're subscribed. Uh, I should mention, next episode, I'll be in New Orleans recording on, on Wednesday you know, morning, Tuesday night, whatever. So thank you guys for all of your support. I should say, by the way, we are on pace to break another downloads record for one month. That should happen potentially by the time you guys and girls are listening to this. So thank you for your support. Uh, but thank you. Make sure you're subscribed, Apple, Spotify, all that. 
Make sure to rate and review the show. Go ahead and give us a quick five stars, all that good stuff. Make sure you're following on social media at Aaron underscore Torres on Twitter, at Aaron Torres Pod on Instagram, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com, Aaron Torres Podcast Questions at gmail.com. That is all for today's show. Shout out to Torrent Craig. Shout out to Rachel who hates my voice. Shout out to Will Smith. What the heck was that about? We will be back on Wednesday, party people. Have a great week. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.